You have meddled with the primal forces of nature! Like we always do about this time. This should be played at high volume. Welcome to the Marketers with Attitudes podcast. This is the place where we teach you how to become the best content marketer you can possibly be. My name is Joshua Barclay, and I'll be your host. Today, I will be interviewing John T. Tregonis. When I was trying to think up an introduction for John, it was very difficult because he's so accomplished. John Tregonis is a TED Talk speaker. He's a published author. He's raised millions of dollars for filmmakers and creative entrepreneurs. He managed the Super Troopers 2 crowdfunding campaign. He worked for Indiegogo. Today, I really want to teach you two things. One, it's 2020. The days of relying on other people are over because of the technology because of social media because of all the creative outlets we have it's now up to us to be able to not only create what we want to create but to be able to finance it as well if you want to start a new business if you want to raise money to, to develop a video game or a movie whatever it is Today, John is going to teach you how to crowdfund. He's going to teach you how to raise that money. And in addition to crowdfunding and raising money, he's also going to teach you what the process is for writing a book. So you get two things. You learn how to raise money and you learn what it takes to write a book. This podcast was recorded via Skype. There's the occasional little blips and noises that come with doing an interview over Skype. Without further ado, you know what this is. This is the Marketers with Attitudes podcast, baby. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. Let's get right into it here, John. I interviewed you about crowdfunding in 2014. Since that time, what has changed in the world of crowdfunding? The brief answer is... The rules still apply, at least the basic rules still apply. Uh, same thing that, you know, I discovered in 2010, the same stuff that I wrote about in 2013, same stuff I rewrote about in, in 2016. The rules are definitely the same, but how we go about doing the rules and playing with those rules has changed and the landscape has changed. So the way we play with the rules is we have to be more innovative than we've ever been before. There's so many people right now crowdfunding for something. It's a major institution right now, especially in independent film in particular. Any aspect of financing, you're going to have some corporate stuff. You're going to have some studio backing. But even in those big productions, you're going to have a piece that's crowdfunded. There's going to be a small piece because that's what they want from an audience to show that there's an audience. So now that everybody's kind of doing this stuff on a regular basis, we basically have to go about it in a way that changes our own campaigns to make them more exciting, more interesting, and not just a kind of run of the mill, hey, we need this money, please help us. I mean, that stuff still exists, but it's just they're not standing out anymore. And that's why there's a lot more unsuccessful campaigns that are happening now because people are jumping into it with the rules, but they're not kind of enhancing on those rules or playing with those rules. And again, going back to that landscape, the landscape's changed in the fact that right now, when you look out on that landscape, there are thousands and thousands of people that are crowdfunding for something. So we have to now compete on that landscape when back in the day, there was a handful in 2010 and 20 and 2008. And then even in 2015, 16, 17, you know, it was growing and there were moments where you'd see a lot of million dollar campaigns hitting. The million dollar campaigns are kind of quieted down all except for a critical role, which kind of sparked again. But again, that's one. 
million multi-million dollar campaign whereas a while ago there were a bunch of them but there are so many more five thousand dollar campaigns fifty thousand dollar campaigns and a hundred and fifty thousand dollar campaigns out there than there ever was that are raising some money all the money and if we want a piece of that package we have to be able to navigate that landscape in a way that is not the standard boring hey, I need money for my film. It's not going to happen anymore. We have to get creative and interesting. Do you think because, like, let's say, for instance, Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. If it's my birthday, I can ask everybody to donate something. Yep. Do you think that because this donation style crowdfunding integration with all social media is happening now, do you think that there's a fatigue and that it's going to become more difficult because it's just ubiquitous now to ask to raise money for things in a way that it wasn't before? hundred percent. I mean, when, when you look at like what, especially what Facebook's done, so two things are going to happen, right? It's definitely become ubiquitous. It's definitely everywhere now. The good thing is that everybody understands crowdfunding now because I would even, I would even say because of Facebook, because they kind of implemented their own crowdfunded element for birthdays and stuff like that. So now with their 5 billion plus users or whatever the number is now, yes, we all know about it more than Kickstarter, Indiegogo, Seed and Spark, all those others. Now the general public understands. Now the other side of that is when you look at the fundraising on Facebook, it's all causes pretty much. It's all goodness of my heart stuff. So that is actually making it more difficult for people to stand out when they want to make just a simple film because there's no cause behind that film. It's a film. It's a product. It's to get this artist to create this film, but there's no cause behind it. So a lot of people are now saying, well, you know, I'd rather put my money to a cause. The general public are saying that. But then you have the backers, the, the I guess I'll call them the old school backers, you know, the savvy backers that have been backing Kickstarters and Indiegogos for almost a decade now. They're looking at it like, OK, I've got 10, 10 cool film and game campaigns. Which ones can I give the most money to? And they'll pick three or four and do it because in their minds, they're like professional backers at this point. So it's kind of segmented into two distinct areas and I think we should thank Facebook to an extent for opening crowdfunding and that idea of online fundraising to the masses. But at the end of the day, we still as filmmakers and creators have to be more niche, especially when we go after our targets. We can't expect our moms and dads necessarily to give us money for our film if on our birthday we're going to crowdfund for you know a major cause like breast cancer or something like that we have to be very careful now like if, if we want to crowdfund for something tangible and that's a product that could make us money in the future you know we have to kind of know how to ask for that now and who to ask for it from you get paid to advise people on crowdfunding campaigns for for filmmaking in particular you worked at any go go let's say someone's listening right now they're a filmmaker or a creative entrepreneur and they want to crowdfund an artistic project could you give them maybe five steps of like what they should do starting from scratch the first step honestly number one most important you've got to build the audience you've got to build your audience it's easy for me to say that it's become much more difficult to build an audience because People's attention spans are just everywhere all at, oh, all yeah. at the same time. So to keep them focused on you and your stuff, 
amidst all this other stuff that they that they love and they can easily find on the internet is a challenge, but it's still the number one way to make a successful campaign. You've got to start early. Now you've actually got to start earlier than ever. You've got it. Like if you have a campaign, I would honestly say six month minimum. I don't care whether you want to raise 5,000 or 500,000. Six month minimum to find, build, and engage with your audience. The people that are actually going to want to see your film and not just your audience, but the community. If you're a filmmaker, you better be ingrained in that community. You're making a comic book. You better know artists and writers and you better have all their Twitter handles ready to go and you're talking to them every day. If you're a game developer, you better be hashtag game dev every day to get into those worlds so that when you do launch a campaign six months later, they will be like, hey, this guy's cool. I've known him for a while. I'm going to support her project immediately because it's cool and I'm going to share it. And then they're going to go to town. And honestly, Josh, this is the hardest and longest process because if we do this right, everything else becomes really kind of second nature and easy. So that's number one, build an audience, start early. Number two, I would say put together a small team of people. It's much easier to do this with a few people, even if it's two other people aside from you, you know, you can designate a little bit of duties to these other people to kind of get the project moving forward a little bit quicker. And that's when you're getting closer to launching the actual campaign. So prepping the campaign, if you're not a good graphic designer, get a good graphic designer. It's all about how the campaign looks on how it reads. If you're not a great writer, if you mess up and have typos, get someone to proofread, call them the proofreader, slap them on the team. Even if they never send anything except one email out to their families, that's enough. You know, we want to just get as many people as we can involved, basically to show people who are looking at the campaign that it's not just us that's running a campaign, this solitary lone artist in the middle of who the hell knows where New Jersey, but we have other people that are actually invested in making this thing happen. So I would say the bigger your team, the better, but have a team of people you can rely on. The next step I would say is to start putting your campaign together and coming up with rewards. This can be challenging for a lot of people coming up with really cool rewards. Not to cut, yeah. not to cut you off, but I, I have to ask, I'm sure now more than ever with this oversaturation of crowdfunding campaigns, your rewards really need to be just as good as the design, as the product, as the whole package. Absolutely. And 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 again, I've seen campaigns that like they're what, what I'm seeing lately is everybody's trying to go backwards a little bit. They're trying to just go for merchandise or they want to completely avoid merchandise and go only digital. Now, the problem with both of these going only digital means you're a cheapskate. Bottom line, you're a fucking cheapskate because it, it, it bugs me out a little bit. People are like, yeah, we only want to do digital we don't want to deal with fulfillment but we want to raise five hundred thousand you're and you're asking somebody for money and you and that it's just yep. disgusting right because that, that's telling me you don't want, really want to give back it, exactly it's, it's telling me you don't really want your audience to be honest because these these perks and rewards are for your audience as a thank you to make them give as much money as they possibly can. And if you're not willing to do that, yes, you're not going to raise $500,000 with digital only. You know, at that point, you need the T-shirts, you need the designed, you need the cool designs for the T-shirt. It can't just be text on your T-shirt, you know. But again, at the same token, you can't just go all, you know, merchandise because then you're cutting into the profit that you're bringing in from the campaign that is supposed to be going to make your film, you know, or or whatever project it is. There's a balance that has to be hit there. I've probably talked about this the, the last time, you know, in my book, I talk about like the three types of perks, standard definition, high definition, and, and three dimensional. And, and basically the breakdown of those is standard def is like, yeah, the merchandise and the easy 
easy stuff, you know, the postcard, the, the, the digital shout out, the high definition or experiences. We're seeing a lot more of these in today's world. People want experiences, even companies like Fathom, you know, that put on movies because they want to get people to go to the theater again because they're not going. They're putting, you know, there's whole companies dedicated to this kind of stuff of creating events around a simple thing like getting people to go to the movies again. We have to be willing to do stuff like that. That's what they want. Three dimensional perks are the hardest. And I kind of I'm kind of taking a backseat on those. They're the ones that are highly, highly personalized to the backers. You know, not everybody has the ability to do that. For example, I always give my poems that I wrote people for my campaign, Cerise. I wrote people poems. The minute they contributed, three days later, they had a poem designed nicely by my fiance and pasted on their Facebook wall as an appreciation while the campaign was going on. Not a lot of people are that creative. Not a lot of people can do that or they have the time to do that. Half of them don't even have the time to do it after the campaign closes, never mind during the campaign. But I got to reap a lot of benefits by doing that, and it was a lot of hard work. So I kind of am moving away from that three-dimensional personalized aspect to doing more personalized experience, what I'm calling lately 4K. <laughs> I have stupid names for all this stuff. But <laughs> you know, 4K rewards or incentives that are a combination of like the personalized experiences, so screenings where the backer gets to give it advice and feedback on the film that they saw. They'll eat that up because they're feeling like they're part of the team. But again, the question comes down to what are the filmmakers, what are the creators willing to do for their audience? And that's where when you're willing to do anything it takes, that's when the creativity starts to flow. And I have a few clients like that right now. They're just all over the place with creative ideas because they want to do everything for their, their audience. I got to reel them in because they're going a little too far. So, so number one, we got real quick. Yeah. We got build an audience. Number two, assemble a team. If you can't design, find a designer. If you can't write, find a writer. And number three, you got to double down on those rewards for your backers. Make it all about the backers because they're going to make their money all about your film. Right? And then so, we got yeah. for the sake of five, yep. give me two more. All right, two more. Next one, I would say do things smart, set a proper goal. I've talked ad infinitum about this so many times because people are still setting mm -hmm. too high a goal. Yep. But <laughs> You know, look at yourself in the mirror. That's what we got to do as, as, as creators. Look at ourselves. Look at our networks. Look at how, how much of an audience we've built up over the last six months of doing that and say, how much money can I realistically raise? The one thing I will say is uh, the days of, for, and this is for the general filmmaker, the days of the goal being your budget are over. It's over. You know, unless you can make a movie for $5,000, you're probably not going to be raising $100,000 if you've only got, you know, 300 Twitter followers and, you know, 1,500 friends on Facebook. It's just going to be very, very difficult. You know, you're going to need a lot to it. So you want to set a goal that matches what you can work with to push the project forward. And then you want to hit that goal in half the time and then double that goal with the remaining time. That's the key strategy that I tell everybody. And that's something that they got to work into it. I'm using that as like a main thing for people to focus on. So it's number four, because it's something that we have to just, we, the, the hardest thing to do is look at, look at us and just be honest and say like, I can only raise $10,000. That's hard to say sometimes when you need 50, but you know what? You raise 10, maybe you raise 15, you have an audience, take that 15, take that audience, 
bring it, go get a grant, go get an investor. You know, it's, it becomes a little bit easier to get those things once you've proven the project in the crowdfunding arena. So that's four. And number five, I would say always soft launch to friends and family first. That is still something that has not gone out of fashion. It's still something I try to disprove every day, but I'm not doing it as much anymore because it's a futile effort. Family and friends are going to be the first people that got to give you something. And if they don't, well, then you're in trouble because if they're not given to you, then you're in a lot of trouble. Exactly. I mean, then there's questions about your your I hate to say it, but there's questions about your character. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, I was going to say probably questions about the project, but more so about the person. And that's kind of that's a little scary situation. That's also something to look at yourself in the mirror about at a different time, you know. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, those are the yeah, five yeah. things that I would say are, are definite. Actually, just today, I, I had a comment from a couple of weeks ago on this Film Courage video that I did on the six big mistakes in crowdfunding. It was basically like I reached out to my friends and family and, you know, they said they can't give any money. You know, and my sister said she could give some that she never did or something like that. And I was like, oh, man. So I had to, like, you know, figure out a proper comment, which was basically like, make sure you're not setting a, a, a too high of a goal and start building your audience. Like that was my basic advice, because, yes, if you build a good enough audience, you can bypass the friends and family part, especially if they're not able to give anything. But you really have to treat those followers and those Facebook friends like they are. Family. That's a lot of work. So you're an accomplished author. You wrote crowdfunding for filmmakers. Can you explain the process of writing a book and perhaps give some tips and tactics for aspiring writers who might be listening right now and wondering, how do I write a book? Is it worth it? It was something I had to learn about because I didn't expect myself to be writing a book, especially something about crowdfunding. I mean, I've always wanted to be like, hey, I'm going to sit on my ass and I'm going to write novels. But but again, to write a nonfiction book was interesting. So I'll give you kind of, you know, I'll split it down the middle of like, if you're looking to do like some kind of nonfiction book or fiction, because I'm also in the process of like working on a, a novel and pitching it to some agents, which is a whole other realm in itself. I got that book deal just by pitching it on Twitter, you know, to my modest following of, I think at that point, 250 people, I think, you know, you just got to kind of know who's following you. A good friend of mine, Tyler Weaver, wrote a cool book um, about transmedia storytelling in comic books. He's kind of somebody that I was looking up to at the time. I still do. He's a really cool dude. I noticed that in he got it published to uh, through Focal Press. So I uh, realized that somebody from Focal Press was following him and me. So when my fiance gave me the idea to write the book on crowdfunding so I can get back to being creative, I said, all right, well, let me pitch it to this girl who's following me and see what happens. And I did. She basically gave me an email address to send a proposal. So the way I did it was I didn't have anything written except articles that I had published online about crowdfunding. So I basically just went through this back door of like, hey, I'm only going to write this book if somebody pays me to write this book. You know, that was my mentality about it. So that's what I kind of did is I went around, went to Focal Press, sent them a proposal. So that's the first step is you got to write a proposal. And that really, it's even, I'd say, a little bit harder than writing the actual book. But once you have that proposal written, you've got the entire book in your head, outlined, ready to go. Is the proposal just, is it an outline of the typical things? Like, who's this book for? Uh, you know, what's my audience, but then you have to structure the book. You need to, you need to have a table of contents. That's, that's the only structure that really needs to be there. I mean, like, you know, you have to do your research, you know, like I I remember when I wrote the proposal and I've written a lot of them since then. And I do it the same way. You got to research what other titles are out there. You got to try to research how much money those other titles have made, which is a little bit 
that takes a little bit of deep research. It's not mandatory to do that, but you definitely have to have the similar titles. And I assume the publishers will be looking into that as well. But if you can give them, say, like, hey, this book made X dollars in the last quarter, you know, so my book will probably double that. You have to basically sell yourself and the book. But yeah, it's it's about the target audience, who's going to buy it, who's going to read it, and all that stuff laid out in about five to 10 pages, I would say. I wouldn't go above that. And a table of contents that kind of shows everything. So the most thought you really have to do about the book itself before you pitch it is thinking of what the chapters are going to be like. So that's basically the proposal. And then you submit the proposal as long as you get a, you know, again, I went through the back door. I, you know, I got an email address and I basically got the editor in chief, reached out to me, said, I'd like to see the proposal, sent it to him. He basically said he was going to take a couple of weeks of research because he'd never heard of crowdfunding. That struck me as very odd since crowdfunding was the biggest thing in film at the time. I went to their direct competition, Michael Weesey Productions. They got back to me within the week and I had a signed contract a week later and I started writing the book. That is kind of typically how it goes though, is like you you do that proposal, you pitch it. They'll probably do a phone call with you to kind of further pitch the book and they'll ask questions. And then once that's done, you get the contract. Hopefully they do in advance. A lot of publishers right now, except the big ones, are not doing advances. I was actually surprised uh, Michael Weesey did in advance, which was really nice and helpful because it's like, hey, I'm getting paid to write this book. Are publishers reluctant to give advances now because economic affairs, if you will, of publishing are not good? You know, that's a good question. And I'm not going to I don't want to pretend to have the answer to that. I think a lot of the smaller publishers, you know, including Michael Weesey, like boutique publishers, a lot of them don't because their mentality is we want content. It's kind of like the same same mentality online. They want content in the form of books, physical and online digital books. And the more they have, the more chances they have to make money from those books, then, you know, the author gets whatever, 10, 15 percent, depending on what's negotiated. And that's how they kind of get around it is like, well, if you sell, you know, if you sell the book, you know, you will get your percentage right away instead of having an advance and then having to pay that advance back through the percentage that you're making before you start making royalties. Does that make sense? Yes. I think it's just an easier way for the publisher to get free shit, you know, and then ultimately when they start selling, everybody makes a little bit of money. They make a lot more money, but the author makes a little bit of money. But here's the thing that authors need to know. And this is what I kind of knew when I was going into it, but I learned it later on much more firmly. You need to do the work to sell your book. The publishers do not do all that much. Knowing what you know now, would you say that self-publishing might be the better option? I think that self-publishing is a good option for certain books, certain types of books. I think there's still, even today, there's some kind of uh, gravitas that's granted to, to authors that have an, a legit publisher. But honestly, I feel like in today's world, designed, well laid out, self-published book can look indistinguishable from an actual published book. And what I mean by that is years ago when the self-publishing revolution hit, the minute I got a book, I could tell it was self-published because the fonts were a little off. There's no ISBN. It was like, this is self-published, you know, because I come from academia too. And again, if you weren't good enough to be published in print, you weren't good 
good enough. So that mentality has totally shifted in myself and in general, but people need to spend money. That's why there's so many services out there to do the self-publishing for you. Take, you know, take a upfront fee, but they make it look great. They get you the ISBN number. You know, if you have a publishing company, they'll slap your logo on there. Like there's so much that can be done to make it very indistinguishable. And yes, you will still have to pay up front a little bit, either if you're using those services or even if you're not, because I'm, I'm in the process of it now. I'm putting out my first poetry book and I'm self-publishing it. And I'm in this process of like, okay, well now I have to get the ISBN number. That's going to cost me probably a couple of hundred bucks to make sure I can get it into Barnes and Noble if I want to and the local bookstore in Jersey City. I want to, you know, I have to probably hire a graphic designer. I probably have to get some artwork from an artist, you know, and a little bit of money here and there. And then ultimately I got to buy a copy of the book so I can proofread the book before I put it up for sale. You know, I have to make sure it looks good and it's, you know, there's no typos physically and all that. There's a lot of work to self-publishing as well that the publishers, if you went the regular traditional route, kind of take care of for you. All I had to do was submit my manuscript in Microsoft Word format. I worked with a great editor named Gary Sunshine, who just, he worked on both my books with me and he just made the book and he pushed my my talents just farther than I thought it should probably go. Uh, <laughs> and it was just a great experience, but that's all I ever had to do was write, write and rewrite. And that was it. They took care of everything else when, you know, they sent me a proof copy. I read it. It was great. I spent zero dollars except when it was published and I had to buy copies, you know, so I could sell them here and there for book signings and stuff like that, which is also expected of you when you go with a legit publisher. They want to know that you've got a marketing plan. That's all part of the proposal, but they want to make sure you're willing to travel a little bit to go to bookstores, set up your own book signings. So what I'm saying is all of that stuff is on the writer. The plus is you have a book good enough for print, according to a publisher. But I think honestly, like right now, I'm looking for an agent for my my novel. And there's a part of me that's kind of like, well, I'll probably end up self-publishing it because it's hard. It's still hard to get an agent and you got to go through the same thing. Sample pages, proposal, you know, and they're reading and reading and reading and they're only reading like the first 10 pages tops. And if it takes too long, then yes, you know, it's going to be one of those things where like, well, I'm just going to self-publish this and maybe take another novel of mine and try to get an agent or get a publisher because with the bigger publishers you need an agent to get into their their world they will not look at you otherwise so i know that's a lot of information and it kind of went no that's great it's a lot of learnings and and at the end of the day like i said the one thing i've learned is you are responsible for selling your own book in a lot of ways unless you're fortunate enough to get harper collins penguin you know companies with big money i feel like those are reserved for the household names if you will the the people that we all know yeah, the um, Stephen Kings, the James Patterson. Yeah. yeah. And again, those are the ones that they're giving the advances of, you know, a ton of money to because they know they're going to make a killing on day one. They're not. That's why I think that's also another reason that, you know, the smaller boutique publishers don't give advances because, again, nobody's really heard of you. Know, nobody heard of me when I was pitching that book, except like probably a few hundred people who were reading the free stuff that I was putting out there. So they were taking a chance on me as much as I was taking a chance at spending the time writing the proposal and, and learning the ins and outs of how to get it published. There's a lot of risks to it, but but there's there's benefits to it. Part of me is like I, I am kind of leaning towards the self-publishing route to as as a means of just, you know, if, if you've tried the traditional route and it's just you've tried it for two years, you know what? Maybe it's time to just put the put the stuff down, get it published, sell it, make a little bit of bucks here and there from friends, family and, and the wider audience and then move on to the next book. You spent several years working for Indiegogo. 
So up to this point of your life, you've worked both in the corporate world and the freelance world. Which do you prefer, and what do you think about the future of work in America? Do you think more people will be forced into freelancing by way of limited opportunities? Yeah, it's a great question, man. Uh, and, I, and I mean that, in, and obviously I think I said America, but I mean, all, all I can think about is this country, which is already too big to even think about. Well, you know, I mean, all, all those people in Europe and, and some other countries, you know, they're, they're working, what, three days a week? and take, they feel I feel like they're always on vacation in Europe. Um, every time I talk <laughs> to European friends, I'm like, hey, you working? They're like, no, I'm on I'm over in, you know, pick island here. So, you know, I spent five years working for Indiegogo. I left a not so cushy uh, adjunct professing job. I used to be a professor for 10 years prior to that while I was working on my films. And I, I left that to give this Indiegogo thing a try because they reached out to me on Twitter, of course, and basically wanted wanted to hire me. So I said it was it was a tough decision because I have always been an anti-corporate soul. I was Occupy Wall Street, you know, a decade before Occupy Wall Street happened and everybody was anti-corporate for a while. For me to do that, I was like, well, it'll be the closest thing to a real job I have. So let me try it. Maybe it's not so bad. And Indiegogo treated me really well for, for many, many years. The company shifted towards the end, you know, and, and we kind of parted our separate ways. But looking back, I definitely don't prefer the corporate world. I'm actually getting back to my anti-corporate roots. Uh, and I feel good about that. Um, <laughs> I tell people, avoid it, avoid it like the, like a plague. Or if you got to do it, do it in your 20s. Get it over with before you're 40 and then just do your own for the rest of your life. Like that would be big advice that I would give because I think it's great. And if you could save up money, it's even greater. Companies have money, suck them for everything they've got as long as you can go home at night after, you know, six, seven o'clock and shut off, you know, from the job and report back at nine or 10 in the morning. Uh, you know, the paycheck was nice because I didn't have to worry and I didn't have to charge people for, for doing what I do. But I do love the freelance uh, consulting that I'm doing for for a couple of reasons. One, I get to work with only projects that I actually like. I and mean, I've got a few projects coming up that I'm working on that I am super excited about. And I haven't been excited about too many projects I've worked on in about two years. You know, this this is going to be really good. And I get to do it on the side. You know, I've, I, I was lucky enough to save up some some bucks through my five years with Indiegogo. So I'm not, oh my God, I need to find more work. I can find enough work to kind of hold me over. But my real job every day is I get to work on my writing. I get to work on my stuff. And then, yeah, in the morning, I'll do two hours of the consulting or I'll do a phone call or I'll work on somebody's draft and then I'll get right back to the writing. And then I, you know, it's, it's just, there's a freedom that comes with freelance that's just unparalleled and wonderful. And I think to answer the big question there, I think, there's always going to be a place in the world for corporate America because, and I don't mean this in a negative way in any way. I use the word tool every now and then because in the world, there are a lot of tools out there. There's a lot of people that just, they unfortunately don't know who they are yet. They don't have an artistic bone in their body. So they're, they have a skill and they're a tool and it's okay because they're going to go home. They've got health insurance. They've got dental. They can go home and watch Handmaid's Tale. They can, they can do stuff. They can go on vacations and that's what they want out of life and, you know, bless them, honestly. So there's always going to be them for that. But I think for the more creative people, for the more the philosophical minded, the more poetic minded, the artists in the world, the well, they're not even artists, they're creatives. They're just there. This goes from fine artists to graphic designers, to writers, to screenwriters who are doing it in Hollywood. I think they're going to be leaning towards freelance because also they're younger. They're millennials. They understand this world in a way that 
my generation, which isn't much farther than theirs, but even my generation didn't. And our dads and moms generations definitely did not understand that life is more important than work. That's one thing that this generation knows and the next generation is going to know it even more. So yes, freelance is going to be, people are just going to be doing their thing. Unless some kind of cataclysm comes about, you know, changes all that. I don't, I don't foresee the really, the really creative people of the world ever working in four walled environments again, unless they're a cool coffee shop or a co-working space. I've had a pleasure with you and you're a really bright guy and you've been a really valuable resource in my own personal life, professional life. I mean, per- my personal professional is a bleed over. It's the same thing for me. <laughs> you know, I read your book when I was at the School of Visual Arts. You actually had come to the school to give a talk. And that's how I that's how I met you. And I hit you up for an interview back then. I really think that you have been an integral part of my understanding of not only art, but business, the bleed over between business and art. I want to thank John for being on our podcast, and I want to thank you for listening. If this podcast helped you in any way, please give us a review on iTunes or just tell somebody about this podcast that you think would get something out of it. Thank you, and um, I hope to see you next time. This is the Marketers with Attitudes podcast, baby. Well, I'm